This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Matt, we have two cards for this week, but we only have one player, and that player is Matt Noakes. So th- we have a lot of firsts, so get the clacks on ready. Okay, I've many got it ready. Firsts Sounding week. it now. Klaxon is going. We have our first two-card episode of the same player. We have our first guest. So I'd like to introduce Brian Granahan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, long-time listener. Very happy to be here. Brian will be our RBI baseball correspondent, our 1987 Tigers correspondent, a wrestling enthusiast, and all things Matt Noakes today as well. We also have our first all-star card with Matt Noakes here and our first all-star rookie. So this all-star rookie card, Matt, Brian, I don't know if you remember these all-star rookies. They have this little trophy down in the corner by the guy's name. It looks like a pretty cheap trophy. (laughs) That's a participation trophy. The Topps Company would, from the 50s into current day, put these little trophies on the card of a guy who was one of the top rookies in the league at a specific position. So Matt Noakes in on the 88 top set was the all-star rookie catcher. And I remember this being kind of a big deal that we would look for these little all-star rookie cards. And to me, part of that was Jose Canseco was an all-star rookie. And I remember seeing that. And then by 1988, Jose Canseco is the, the biggest thing in baseball and thinking like, well, if Canseco was one of those guys, I got to find the other ones. And that's why Matt Noakes' card seemed like this was this was an investment. And so, Matt, at that, I would ask you to consult the Beckett because I think that the 1988 Beckett is going to tell you this is a really valuable piece of <laughs> investment. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Let's see, David, I've got... Okay, so I'm checking up card 645, which is the is the all-star rookie card and that value in 1988 in november 1988 was 60 cents in mint condition i think currently on the beckett guide which uh link in the show notes it's it's 50 cents so it's really maintained its value better than a car really (laughs) better than better than a 1988 toyota Uh, very little depreciation on this matt noakes yeah he had he had quite it's quite a, a lot of value there. And then the second card, uh, 393, which which is the all-star card we'll talk about more about. We'll talk more about here in a second. Uh, it was 20 cents. So so added together, that's a almost a dollar of Matt Noakes' baseball card in that set. The all-star card was always worth a little less than the regular card. And it was a bit disappointing to get from time to time. As much as you might like a certain player and you like the fact that they had two cards in the set, you get the all-star card and you realize you're getting something that was about a third to a quarter of the value of the regular card. And yeah, it was great to have all the all-stars and collect them all together, but it was just kind of always a little second best, it felt like. Matt Noakes, as a topic of conversation, came up thanks to a Twitter follower. At CDAnders313 writes in 
in late winter, early spring of 1988, there was no card that as a Tiger fan, we looked forward to seeing more than Matt Noakes. And Brian, would you agree with C.D. Anders' statement there? Yeah, absolutely. You have a player who, in 1987, as a rookie, hit 32 home runs as a 23-year-old rookie catcher. If you're a young kid at that time, I was born in 1977, so I was 10 years old during the 1987 season. Maybe you didn't understand that players tended to peak around age 26 or 27, but you knew if they were that good when they were young, that was the card that you wanted to have. And you knew the value of a rookie card, even when you were that young. We used to get Beckett magazines back in 87 and 88, and we'd check them and we'd see what the value was. And getting those great rookies, it was always something you looked forward to. And if you followed that Tigers team and you liked that Tigers team, Matt Noakes was the young cornerstone of that team. And coming off of the 84 season when they won the World Series, they were competitive through the mid-80s. You felt like this was the player of the future. So I think it was natural to probably look at Matt Noakes and say, okay, this is the guy who might have another 10 to 12 years in Detroit as a catcher and be a real cornerstone of these teams for the years to come. So looking at the front of the the rest of the front of the card, in addition to the trophy, you've got Noakes. So he's got his, his catcher's mitt in his ball. He kind of looks like he's just received a throw and is a, about to throw it back to somebody. But he's got... What's the look on his face? David and I have been fond of referring to certain players as looking like characters from the game River City Ransom, um, <laughs> yes. the Nintendo game from the late 1980s, uh, yeah. part of the Kunio series of, of games from Technos in Japan. And there's a very distinctive look to both the main characters in River City Ransom and some of the gangs that you encounter with kind of bulging eyes and very square jaws. Mesut Ozil, for instance, the, the professional soccer player, very much a River City Ransom looking guy. And I think here, Matt Noakes has a bit of a River City Ransom look to him. He looks like he's, you know, you might be facing him in Sherman Park, for instance, uh, with that catcher's mitt on and the baseball in hand. Was Super Dodgeball uh, part of this series as well? Yes. Because, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I could definitely see him as one of the Super Dodgeball players ready to throw a, a triple a triple dodgeball at you. Yeah, perhaps one of the guys who's hanging out by the side on the other side where you yes. throw the ball to him and then he can be able to chuck it at the players on the other side of the court. But he know, definitely that... has the square shoulder and jaw. I don't know why I thought that he, and maybe it's from the way that he looks on this card, that I thought he was kind of a little guy. And maybe that's be because of being a catcher squatted behind the plate. He also had a compact stance where he was kind of, like hunched over stance and would kind of dig low for, for balls in the dirt. And I always thought that he was kind of little. And now I look at the back of this card and see that he's 6'1", 185. So not little. Looking at, looking at the back of the card, born in San Diego, home is in Poway, California, drafted by the Giants in 1981. And there's several years of minor league stats in here. And yet the fun fact is, again, David, one of our favorites, that Matt played Little League, Babe Ruth League, and Palomino League baseball, that he grew up playing baseball as a baseball player. <laughs> and then it lists some of his pastimes. His variety of pastimes includes going skiing, fishing, and playing guitar, which makes you really like... I mean, want to be Matt Noakes' buddy. Like, this sounds really fun. Like, a guy likes to ski and fish. I want to go fishing with Matt Noakes. Yeah. And later on, we're going to talk about some of his other pastimes. 
including being a pilot. So later on, that will come up. This might be the first fun fact that is kind of fun. The rest of them <laughs> were all like signed by some agent in 1982. Yes, Curly McGuire. <laughs> I do want to point out, though, that a, a player who is known for his catching, it would make sense that he would be a good fisherman. It's I a very it. dad joke. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. He was drafted by the Giants. He's called up to the big leagues in late 1985, gets his first major league playing time. And then in 86, he is traded to the Tigers. And... Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about where the Tigers were at in 1986 and what this trade meant to that team? Sure. It's difficult to talk about the 86 or, again, the 87 Tigers without talking a bit about the 1984 Detroit Tigers. The 84 Tigers were one of the signature teams of the 1980s. They led all of baseball in wins in 1984 with 104 victories. They got off to this huge start, went 35-5 and five to start the season in 1984. They dominated the playoffs, ended up sweeping the Royals in the 84 ALCS, beat the Padres four games to one in the 84 World Series, and they really had the same core of players throughout 85 and 86 in 1987. And, you know, the, probably the most notable feature of that core was up the middle. They had Alan Trammell at shortstop and Lou Whitaker at second base. But they also had some other star players as well that were both in the 84 team and the 87 team. Kirk Gibson, for instance, who was the ALCS MVP. They had Jack Morris as their ace pitcher. They had Willie Hernandez, who would later become Guillermo Hernandez as their closer. Chet Lemon, Larry Herndon, Tom Brookins, Daryl Evans, who ended up having a really underrated career. So that was the core of their team throughout the entire run of the 80s. Catcher was not a hole for the Tigers either. They had Lance Parrish, who was one of the best catchers in the American League during this era. He was an eight-time All-Star, won the Silver Slugger Award six times, and the Gold Glove three times. Now, as 86 comes along, Lance Parrish is eligible for free agency, and there's a bit of a controversy regarding his leaving the Tigers. There was at least some talk that there was collusion among owners at this point in baseball history, where effectively the owners were colluding to depress free agency prices, and Lance Parrish was one of the victims of this. He ended up signing with the Philadelphia Phillies for $800,000 a year, plus I think $200,000 in incentives of his back held up, with, I believe, a promise that he wouldn't sue the Phillies or Major League Baseball for collusion as part of that contract. With Lance Parrish leaving the Tigers in 86, they had a hole at catcher, and Matt Noakes ended up coming in in 1987 and ably stepping into that hole for his rookie year for the Tigers. So Noakes comes in in 86, is traded from the Giants to the Tigers. He is traded with Dave LaPointe and Eric King, who both of whom are uh, former White Sox, White Sox legends, one might say. And he is <laughs> traded for... Uh, Juan Berenger and Bob Melvin. Interesting note here that Juan Berenger was released by the Giants and picked up by the Twins and then ended up pitching in the ALCS against the Tigers and pitched in four of those five ALCS games against the Tigers in 1987. Bob Melvin was a good defensive catcher. Not a lot to say about Bob Melvin. We'll talk about him more in the Bob Melvin episode, but much more distinguished as a manager than as a player. Really, Matt Noakes, the star of this deal here, and a young catcher going to the Tigers to take the place of Lance Parrish. And he 
does come up to the Tigers in 1986, plays in the big leagues for the Tigers after spending a lot of time in Nashville with their AAA team. And interestingly, at the end of the 1986 season, he hits a home run on the last day of that season. And so maybe this is foreshadowing a, a big 1987 to come for Matt Noakes. Noakes initially comes up in 85 with the Giants before the trade. Ninth youngest player in baseball at the time, at least for the 1985 season. I think that's interesting because, generally speaking, you don't see catchers make their way into the major leagues until they're 23, 24, 25 years old. For whatever reason, the Giants and then next the Tigers had enough confidence in a young Matt Noakes to bring him to the majors at age 21 and 22. So perhaps his big year in 1987, you could see maybe some of the teams that he played for felt like this was a player who could really be a contributor ahead of the curve for a lot of players at his position. Brian, as you said, we have a young Matt Noakes going into 1987. At that point, he's making $68,000 a year. Big time salary for a 23-year-old in 1987 can buy a lot of Matt Noakes rookie cards. <laughs> yes, we will see his salary does go go up considerably throughout his career. So, Brian, why don't you just tell us about the 87 season and then go into that 87 playoffs and what this t- Tigers team was like. Also really interested about for you as a kid picking the Tigers. So hopefully you get to that as well. Sure. So as a young kid, there were probably a couple of things that led me to be a Tigers fan, at least for a brief stretch of time. The first was, and I think this is true of some of us, we didn't want to cheer for the hometown team. There was just something about the notion that you were cheering for the same team as everyone else that just seemed unappealing. So you'd pick these teams that you'd see on television and you were curious about. And if you wore their hat, it was a different hat than every other kid at school had. And for me, that was the Tigers. And I think a lot of that was that 1984 Tigers team. The 84 Tigers were the signature team of that season. I was seven years old at the time. I was really getting the sports, really getting the baseball. I could watch their games in the ALCS and World Series on television. They had that cool Gothic D logo, beautiful classic uniforms. And when you're a young kid, the aesthetics of a team really does matter in terms of getting some traction as a fan. So I ended up following the Tigers throughout uh, much of the mid-80s and really latched on to the 87 team. By the time I was you know, 10 years old in 1987, I was collecting baseball cards. I was memorizing the statistics on the back of them. I was trying to search out ways to watch games on the weekends, whether it was the NBC game of the week or whatever might be on. And so it was a good time to pick a team that might be from somewhere else because you were able to pick up those cards, learn about those players, and, and develop your own following. And so for me, that was the Tigers during this era. Loved Jack Morris, just thought he was a, a terrific pitcher. Loved Willie Hernandez out of the bullpen. Alan Trammell was my favorite player for some part of my youth. And then, of course, in later years, this team would become memorialized through the video game RBI Baseball, one of the most popular video games, sports video games, released for the Nintendo Entertainment System. RBI Baseball featured 10 teams. It was the four playoff teams from the 1986 season and the four playoff teams from the 1987 season, and then two all-star teams made up of American League and National League all-stars from those two years. Of the 10 teams in that game, the consensus is that the Detroit Tigers uh, were the best team. They were the best team largely because they had the best offense. They had power hitters up and down their lineup. And as it turned out, this was actually a very accurate reflection of who the Detroit Tigers were in 1987. Uh, The Tigers in 1987 had a huge season. They were the team that scored the most runs in baseball, while the Toronto Blue Jays 
Their foil for that season was the team that was the best in run prevention. They allowed the least runs in baseball that year. The Tigers had a great offense. Alan Trammell finished second in the MVP voting, batting 343 that year. Daryl Evans might not have had his best season, but he still hit quite a few home runs. You had Lou Whitaker, Chet Lemon also having big years. But then also you had the young catcher, Matt Noakes. Matt Noakes came through with a 289 batting average and 32 home runs, made the all-star team that year, finished third in the rookie of the year voting. So this was a team that was ended up with the best record in Major League Baseball, 98 wins. They had the best offense in all of baseball. And so if you're a young kid and you're 10 years old and you want to see action in baseball, the Tigers were where it's at. Brian, tell us about the season ended up being an incredible pennant race. There was a pennant race between the Blue Jays and the Tigers, the teams that would end up with the two best records in baseball. And the Blue Jays ended up with a three and a half game lead um, with, I believe, seven or eight games to play. And what would happen over the next period could either be described as one of the great comebacks in the history of pennant races or one of the great collapses in the history of pennant races, depending on your perspective. The Toronto Blue Jays would go on to lose their next seven games, the last seven games of the season, and finish the season at 96 and 66, while the Tigers would win six of their last eight. And specifically, the Tigers would beat the Blue Jays in a three-game sweep at the end of the 1987 season and take the AL East division through three straight one-run victories at Tiger Stadium, including some incredibly dramatic games. Now, back during this era, having the best record in the American League or having the best record in baseball didn't earn you home field advantage because home field advantage actually rotated between the divisional winners from season to season. So the Tigers, who just gotten through with this stretch of the last two weeks of the season playing incredibly intense baseball, including a number of matchups against the other best team in the majors, then had to go travel to Minnesota and play the Twins two games in a row at the Metrodome. Now, as we saw in 1987 and 1991, when the Twins went on to win the World Series, the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome was a very difficult place to play. So you had this juggernaut Tigers team going into Minnesota, having to face off against Frank Viola and Burt Blylevin in the first two games of the series. They dropped those two games. The Twins jump out ahead of them. The Tigers were able to come back and get a win in Game 3, but Game 4, the Twins ultimately take, and then they finish off the Tigers in Game 5. One of the notes about Matt Noakes that I think is important for understanding both his role in the playoffs and his role in the season is that while Matt Noakes had a huge year, 32 home runs, 289 batting average, he was ultimately a player that you couldn't play consistently against left-handed pitchers. He only hit 207 during the 1987 season against left-handed pitchers. He only started four games during the year against left-handed pitchers. They go into the series against the Minnesota Twins, and they're starting Frank Viola in game four, back when basically your best pitcher would be used in games one, four, and seven of a, of a seven-game series. Noakes doesn't play in either of them. So while Matt Noakes was one of the real signature players for the Tigers in the 87 season, in these key games, because he couldn't hit left-handed pitchers, he ultimately wasn't a guy who made a lot of contributions. The Tigers would end up then fizzling out, losing to the Twins in five games. And of course, the Twins would go on and win a classic World Series over the St. Louis Cardinals four games to three. Interesting that you say that about Noakes against lefties. This Tigers team had a lot of good left-handed hitters, including, as you said, Lou Whitaker, uh, Noakes, Kirk Gibson, and Daryl Evans, all lefties. So pretty loaded with left-handed batters to go against Frank Viola. That's a difficult situation in that, in that playoff season. In that end run of the regular season, 
Noakes had a really good September and actually hit 308 with seven home runs in that September of 1987. So in that run up to the playoffs, he was a key contributor in, in that regard, if not against Jimmy Key in, in those important games against Toronto. I think anyone who plays a lot of RBI baseball for Nintendo knows the value of the left-handed batter. If you have a runner on first base and you hit a ground ball to the right side of the infield, as left-handed batters are prone to do through pulling the ball, it automatically gets through. So the Tigers, by having all of those left-handed batters, it's one of the reasons why one of the, they're one of the strongest RBI baseball offenses. And Matt Noakes batting fourth in that lineup, even though he batted primarily fifth during the regular season for the Tigers, he's fourth in RBI baseball. He's sitting amongst a, amidst a number of lefties in the lineup for them, and he's a very valuable batter in that game. Brian, you said that he batted fifth in this Tigers lineup. I was trying to figure out how this season differs from Noakes' later career and how his stats fell off a little bit after this year. Or, you know, At least he wasn't hitting 30-plus home runs like he did in 87. And part of that, to me, was his spot in the lineup. He's sitting there behind Alan Trammell, who's having the best season of his career, also hitting a lot of home runs for a shortstop. And in the fourth spot for this Tigers team, third in the lineup was Kirk Gibson, also having huge power numbers. So you have Gibson, Trammell, Noakes. That had to have helped him out with getting good pitches to hit. It's also the case that the book might have been out on him. It might have been a situation where pitchers learned that Matt Noakes wasn't great at hitting the curveball. If you threw him low fastballs, he was a guy who could crush those pitches. Didn't adjust quite as well to off-speed pitches and curveballs. Also, both Tiger Stadium and Yankee Stadium were a great help to Matt Noakes. Both very good parks for left-handed power hitters. Matt Noakes could just hit uh, what might be pop flies in other parks, and they would leave the yard and right field of those stadiums. So a lot of his power numbers might be attributed to the fact that he had favorable ballparks that he played in for the bulk of his career. All right. Moving into 88, they lost Kirk Gibson in the offseason. He goes to the Dodgers. But it looked like everyone else in the lineup just kind of fell off production-wise, including Noakes. Yeah, the 1988 Tigers, ultimately they won 88 games and they lost the division by a game to the Red Sox. They really faded down the stretch. The bigger issue for the Tigers was that the core that they had in 84 and 87 was the same core in 1988, and all of those players were simply older by then. Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker were now in their 30s. Darrell Evans was entering into the twilight of his career. Kirk Gibson, of course, left and had an MVP season, I believe, for the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1988. So he was a key contributor. And they only dropped 10 games off of a 98-game pace. So things would get a lot worse by 1989, where the Tigers basically collapsed and the bottom fell out entirely. 1989, epically bad season. Up to 1989, this was the worst season in Tigers history. And Noakes gets traded to the Yankees, traded for a couple of pitchers, who ended up not really doing much in Detroit, and both of them were gone after a season. So Noakes is now in, in New York for some pretty bad New York Yankees teams, but he still is hitting over 20 home runs in 91 and 92, uh, but his batting average is dropping. It's just kind of a, a real drop in production for some pretty garbage New York teams. And Matt Noakes was never known as a great defensive catcher. So when the offensive skills start to decline a little bit, you have a player who doesn't have a whole lot of value because he isn't viewed as a guy who's great at calling a game. 
He generally in his career struggled to throw out runners behind the plate. By 1993, the dominant catcher for the New York Yankees uh, becomes Mike Stanley. And Matt Noakes is relegated to more of a reserve role. Nevertheless, he does have some key moments in his career through 93 and 94. He's not playing that much. He's clearly the backup. But he does go on to catch a no-hitter for Jim Abbott. So that's something that not a lot of people can say. And there's another interesting moment in Matt Noakes' New York career that, interestingly, I think this is the last thing that he tweeted the other day. He tweeted kind of in the third person, Roger Clemens drills Matt Noakes in the ribs with a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, trapping it under the armpit, and throws it back at him, and the bench is clear. And you'll see in this video, Clemens throws very inside. Noakes was convinced that Clemens was throwing at him. And he threw the ball so hard that as it hit him in the side, Noakes is able to put his arm down and kind of catch the ball. And then he just turns around and chucks the ball right back at, at Clemens, who nonchalantly catches it. But it, it was a, a very good, you know, another benches clearing brawl. Matt and I, both fans of these baseball fights. It does look very much, with two players involved who were part of RBI Baseball, the video game, it looks very much like a beaming that you would see in RBI Baseball. Just a player being hit squarely in the side and crumpling as someone would, which allows the baseball to be pinned against his ribs and thrown back at Clemens. By 1994, Noakes is out of favor in, in New York. His offensive production has dropped off and his contract expires. He ends up playing for the Orioles and Rockies in 1995, but doesn't do much in, in the majors. And then he retires, sort of. He, he goes on to play a couple more seasons in the Independent League, one for the St. Paul Saints. And then he came to the Chicagoland area for a couple of the Independent League minor league teams around here, particularly the Schaumburg Flyers, who are no longer in existence. Now they are the Schaumburg Boomers, but at the time they were the Schaumburg Flyers. And Noakes was the player coach for the Flyers in 2001. I teased earlier that he had another pastime, and that was flying planes. So Matt Noakes owned a plane and is a licensed pilot. The Schaumburg Flyers Stadium is very close to Schaumburg Airport. So Noakes could just fly into the airport, and it's not a very far... I think you could walk from the airport <laughs> to the Schaumburg Flyers Stadium. And he credited that with his ability to hit 350 in the independent league that he would fly from stadium to stadium so he if he had to go to winnipeg he could just fly his personal jet up there there is an interesting story about his flying from february of 2000 the engine failed on his plane as he's flying around san diego and the engine fails and he lands his plane safely on I-15 north of San Diego. So he just kind of hovered over the cars that are driving on the expressway and safely lands his plane. And he said there it was a kind of a weird incident. And then he went on to fly that plane every day for five years. He then goes on to sell that plane. And the next guy to own it attempted to land on that same stretch of highway due to a, an engine issue and, and crashed the plane. <laughs> 
and it hit a car and killed a person. So there, that plane was lucky for Matt Noakes, but not so lucky for the next, the next owner of that plane. He also managed the Joliet Jackhammers, who are another independent league team. They're now known as the Slammers because of the Joliet Penitentiary home of Jake and Elwood Blues. He's had a couple other minor league coaching jobs, uh, including the Lincoln Salt Dogs, who also play with the Chicago Dogs in that other American Association of Independent Baseball Leagues. That's a lot of dogs. So, so many dogs. And as I said earlier, Noakes is on Twitter. He's not super active on there, so I haven't I haven't had to mute Matt Noakes on Twitter or unfollow him. He mostly... Well, I'll wait until he hears this. <laughs> yeah. But he now has a website, mattnoakes.com. He's a coach. He also has his own podcast, so maybe we can invite him to come in. and. Yeah, I'm looking at, looking at his podcast right now. His website's mattnoakes.com, and you can click for your complimentary new hitters. Mm-hmm workshop he was known as a player with one of the more aesthetically pleasing swings over the years a left-handed batter who when he had a low pitch would golf it out of the park and it was great to watch you know it was it was the sort of thing where it was what what you wanted a home run to look like was when matt noakes hit a home run we'll have some videos of some of his moments in the majors here and you can see that swing. He gets really low. Sometimes his knee is almost in the dirt as he's swinging for the for the fences. But he was a had a, a pretty iconic swing. Brian, you want to give us your your final thoughts on Matt Noakes? I think Matt Noakes is a player who, for a lot of us who enjoy the 1988 Tops podcast, it reminds us of a very specific point in time in our lives when we'd open up a pack of baseball cards. And we'd see a player who maybe 10 years later wasn't always at front of mind in the way that like a Barry Bonds was or players who had a little bit longer tail to their career. Matt Noakes was the sort of player who, when I think of that 87, 88, 89 era, Matt Noakes is one of the names that really comes to mind. He was an all-star. He won the Silver Slugger Award. He was third in the Rookie of the Year voting. He was a cornerstone on a playoff team. He ended up playing on some pretty bad early 90s Yankees teams, as as Dave pointed out, but nevertheless was really a player that I think a lot of us grew up on and was a baseball card that we were very happy to get. If you unpacked your 88 Tops pack and you got that Matt Noakes rookie card, that was a card that you really wanted to see. Thanks, Brian. And I will say that, that as I opened up this set, I had a similar feeling when I pulled out the Matt Noakes. It was like this, oh, Matt Noakes. You know, excitement about a Matt Noakes rookie. Well, Brian, thanks again for joining us. We will have you uh, back for any conversation about the 1987 Detroit Tigers in the 792-plus episodes of this. We're going to have some more Tigers chat, and we will be happy to have you back. I just hope I'm around to see it, you know, 792. (laughs) Got a lot of life in front of us. Brian, thank you very much. If you, listening at home, would like to join us on the 1988 Tops podcast, please reach us on Twitter at Tops1988 or email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>